Voices serves as the megaphone for individuals who have endured transformational change. By highlighting trials and triumphs, our desire is to create a safe space for pivotal conversations, which in turn will deepen the story and provoke hope for you, our listeners. As you may know, change is never easy, but it is inevitable. You are not alone in what you're facing. Your transformation is possible, purposeful, and now. And here's Aaron Wiggum, founder and managing director of New You, with this week's guest. Welcome to another edition of New Voices. My name is Aaron Wiggum, and I am your host. I also serve as the managing director of New You, and New You is a way for individuals to imagine, discover, and actualize a 2.0 version of themselves. Today, we have a wonderful guest, uh, Chris Dancy, who is here with us. This man is the most connected man in the world. He is um, an amazing thought leader. He is a presenter. He is a, a, a fantastic orator. Um, he has a wonderful story he's going to share with us today. And, you know, I, I had a great conversation with Chris a few months ago and just left so full of the wisdom and the nuggets that he dropped during that uh, short, you know, 30 minute, 40 minute conversation. So I'm, I'm highly anticipating today's conversation. Uh, you are in for a treat. Uh, welcome to this platform. None other than Mr. Chris Dancy. Welcome, Chris. Uh, hi, Aaron. <laughs> it's it only called wisdom because you you get to be old enough to to remember some stuff. Yeah, yeah. They they call it uh toe, which is time on earth, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got a lot of that. I was telling Lydia, is it Lydia? Lydia, yes. I love Lydia. I was telling Lydia. Isn't she amazing? I love her. Well, yeah. first, like her email reads differently than because you know I I kind of cyclically read people's emails and imagine what they look like. Uh -huh. um, but uh, I was telling her, I said, I don't look 55, but I yeah. am. People always go, you you know, you really know a lot. I'm like, no, I'm just old. Just don't, <laughs> just don't confuse yourself like what I look like versus all right. that. Yeah. And we have a common friend, Jessica. Yes. Brooks. Yeah, yeah, Jessica Brooks. She is amazing. I just talked to her the other day. Um, absolutely amazing. Doing some wonderful things. Just took over a, a really great position in Washington, D.C. And we're really excited for the work she's going to be leading there. Um, and so shout outs to you, Jessica, for not only making this connection, but for the rock star that you are, right? She is a rock star. I mean, you know, I, I have to just say this, you know, when I first transitioned out of the business world, we'll get to all this, but from like a real corporate job yeah. to being a full-time speaker, which, you know, how do you do, how do you just stop working and get paid to speak? Yeah. In 2014, her, her, the company she was with, she was one of the first people who ever hired me and after mm -hmm. I got off stage, you know, people were like, you know, it's amazing, all this other kind of stuff. And I went up yeah. here and I just thanked her so much. And, yeah. you know, if it hadn't been for her and her belief in me, you know, wow. 10 years ago, you know, I'd probably still be doing what I'm doing, but I certainly wouldn't have had that kickoff. You know, yeah. she was she was certainly a new voice to change my life. Yeah, absolutely. And, and she has done the same thing for me countless times in our um, relationship over the last 25 years or so. We've known each other uh, where she's open doors not only and also gave that word of encouragement or wisdom or that swift kick in the butt like come on man you got to get it together you know and so uh definitely cherish and, and treasure uh the value of of, of uh, jessica brooks sure yeah. cool. so uh, let's get into your story um we we uh always start with a simple question Give us the Chris Dancy story what how, how does your story begin and you can bring us however you would like to tell that the whole thing? No. Um, yeah. 
Well, goodness, uh, I was born in 1968. That's how I like to start. I think years are important. People forget that years even happen anymore. It's like all happens at once. Yeah. Um, you know, I was born to two uh, mom and dad from upstate New York who had relocated to Maryland. Uh, we lived in a very, very segregated community in Baltimore City. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, by the early 1970s, there were a lot of uh, just challenges. You know, just look at the time frame. And I grew up being raised by a black nanny named Miss Helen. And it was weird because none of my other friends had nannies. And I don't even, to this day, I don't know if people have nannies. They were like au pairs from Europe or something. Yeah. But Miss Miss Helen just raised me different because I, I felt different. And like, yeah. I had a lot of problems as a kid. Like, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm autistic. So I, I struggle with sounds and lights. And mm-hmm. I would have all sorts of physical problems and ticks and things. And Miss Helen was, you know, she was just like that movie where she would tell the, the I can't remember the name of the movie, but she'd say, you're good and you're smart. Miss Helen, I like I literally had a, a woman like that raise me, and it just changed my life. And it was weird. My parents would come home, and I don't know. It was like I wanted the version of the Miss Helen family I had. Yeah. Fast forward now to high school. Miss Helen's out of my life. I now have my driver's license. I'll still go down and visit her and things. But I just became really interested in treating other people like Miss Helen treated me. Mm. Um, even as a teenager, I lied. You know, at fourteen, I lied about. My age said I was 16 and got a job in the early 80s at a medical clinic. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about medicine. But, you know, I, I, I said I was 16 and my father was a doctor. Completely lied. Uh, <laughs> and I would go in back and I would, it would be Tandy, TR, Sadie's, I'd back them up and things like that. Yeah. Right into college. Uh, again, I, my parents didn't have money for school. So I got a bunch of loans, all sorts of crazy stuff. And then one thing led to another. And my parents were spending my money that I, I was given for school. So I literally got escorted out of school because they hadn't been paying the bills. It was so terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't, want, I don't want to say my parents are bad people. They're just, yeah. they were doing whatever they had to do. To, I guess yeah. out of, They weren't me. I know that somehow I came out different. Um, and then, you know, Aaron, things just got rough. You know, from the early 90s, um, I, I came out as, as gay. Uh, and not, well, I came out in 88, but... It wasn't a time my first lover had HIV, died in bed next to me. Mm. Like I woke up and he'd passed away. It was just a lot of drama. Again, take a lot of problems and add a lot of problems. And then by the early, late 90s, uh, I was, just, I'm not gonna lie, I was just drinking and uh, I was on antidepressants since 1987. So a lot of, a lot of challenges. But somehow through my entire life, the drinking and alcohol and rehabs and jails and mm-hmm. all the problems, I was super successful. I'm mm-hmm. not going to lie. Usually you don't get both. You're just either yeah. a mess up or you're super successful. I was somehow both. Yeah. But it was just tearing me apart. But I was just really, really outwardly good person. But I would just go and just try to, to drown it all. Yeah. Fast forward to 2008 and I was at my computer one day and I said to myself, I was trying to find something I'd seen on the internet. And I looked at my internet history, which I rarely did at that point. You know, looking at internet history was something that was still new to a lot of people by then. And I saw like all the things over the last two days I'd searched for. And I thought, my computer knows I'm a mess. Mm-hmm. And it just dawned on me like how much my computer knew about me. Mm-hmm. And it kind of blew my mind. So I cleared my browser right away. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot I could do this. Like it's too much crazy, you know, all sorts of things on there. And then it got it dawned on me, what happens if I wrote a program that sat on my computer and anytime I did anything from internet searches to sending an email, it wrote mm-hmm. down what I did. 
Hmm. And it was this really simple little concept that kind of like, I, I call it big mother, not big brother. It just mm-hmm. watched me and I stored it all in my calendar, a Google calendar. So I have a Google calendar with thousands of data points, uh, uh, data slots in it. And then about two years into it, I just started having it look for patterns and color coding patterns. And then I'd have it send me an email or a push message on my phone when I was about to do something bad. So from 2008 to 2012, I took all that computer knowledge and I worked for WebMD and a bunch of other big companies and said, I'm going to build something just for myself. And by 2012, I was talking back to me from the computer. Like mm-hmm. it was seeing these patterns in my life, kind of like what people do today with uh, chat GPT. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just said, hey, I need to, you know, never drink again. I need to get off antidepressants for the past 20 years. I need to get my life right with God and all these other things. Mm-hmm. And by 2014, I'd lost 100 pounds, quit smoking, had come off any 25 years of antidepressants and benzodiazepines, mm-hmm. was just making money hand over. I was always really successful with making money hand over. I just become a completely different person all through this kind of just symbiotic relationship I created with my computer. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, here it is 10 years later. And I mean, honest with you now, I just, you know, people are like, well, what do you do for a living now? I mean, I do a lot of interesting things, but I don't work anymore. Um, yeah. I got a book deal and a TV deal and all that other kind of stuff. But I became famous before everybody was, because I know everybody's famous. Yeah. You know? yeah. But I also got famous too late. Like if I'd gotten famous 10 years before, I'd be a household name. But there's yeah. a period of time between 2010 and 2015 where you could be just famous enough not to work, but you could also like mess up and you weren't canceled. Because right. your fame came late, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's weird. People don't talk about fame that way. And now it's just like, you know, I spend a lot of time helping out, I'll be honest with you, marginalized communities. You know, I build a lot of systems today using low-code, no-code, or AI mm-hmm. to just kind of do for them what technology did for me. Yeah. Um, if I could sum up my life in like one phrase, it's just the saying I say all the time. It's the biggest problem I had was I didn't know what, how to measure what I cared about. So I cared about what I measured. And my entire life was measured by my bank account or how many drinks I had or how many friends I had or how many, how many social media posts I had done that were successful. And until I actually could create my own version of what was important, mm-hmm. my life didn't become important. Wow. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. Yeah. Total sense. Uh, so... Uh, you said a lot. I told you all you are for a treat today. You you just said a, a roller coaster, and there's yeah. a million roller coasters in that roller coaster. Yes, yeah, I know, and that's where I'm about to go into. So, <laughs> so you're saying you're born in in 1968. Yeah. Um. Uh. You know, in 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 Maryland, and uh, that's of course that's right around the the, the heart of the civil rights movement, right? Dead in the middle um, of it. Yeah. yeah. And so, um. And you have this black nanny, Miss Helen, who's taking care of you. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the dichotomy of what was going having, on? Having a racist father and a, and a black nanny. Oh, there you go. Let's talk about that. Yeah. You want to go there? Uh, sure. It was weird. I mean, again, I only can speak from my experience. I have no idea what it would be like to be another color, another gender. I don't have yeah. any of that. Yeah. But I do know you don't know what your parents are until you meet other parents. And then it's not completely obvious. I didn't know my father was, you know, so much of a racist as he ended up being, you know, again, you're in elementary school and some things just aren't obvious. Right. Um, 
And obviously having Miss Helen raise us wasn't, you know, it's like, okay, well this, but there were some violent things. I mean, because it was the middle of the civil rights movement, um, there were a lot of civil unrest and the store that they owned was always getting held up. So uh, people breaking and things like that. So they're always coming in, threatening whoever was working, you know, guns, all that kind of stuff. You know, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. My my father would literally kill people. It's, mm. it's like not even a, you know, people are just like, no. I'm like, no, literally, you'd shoot and kill people because they were being held up and he'd say that he was defending himself. And again, I, don't, I was a child. I, I yeah. have no idea. Yeah. Um, but I do know that from seven or eight to maybe 14 or 15, Miss Helen would take us to the store whenever there was a shooting. And my brother and I would have to mop up the blood. I mean, as I mean, literally right out of a horror movie, right? Wow. And, and now I look back and I see the outrageous amounts of trauma that I was uh, I was put through. And Miss Helen, right? And Miss Helen's carting us down there, and there's dead people on the floor, right? right? You know, and this is before we talked about gun violence, right? Mm. But my my parents and and that and that point in our life, there was always justification. And the other thing I learned back then was. The police were, I don't want to say in on it, but they knew my dad. Yeah. So like, it yeah. didn't matter if he said that, you know, somebody shot first, you know, that's it's it everything you could think about that you worry about and you hear in the news that's wrong with the system. I mm. saw it. Yeah. Saw it firsthand before we talked about it, before it was news, any of it. Mm. And that informed me because the first thing I did, Aaron, when I became old enough to like have friends like of my own, yeah. they were all black. The first thing I did when I could have a girlfriend, black mm-hmm. girlfriend, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. No, Let's no, talk no. talk about her, too. Andrea, Andrea Mack, God bless her. I know she's still alive somewhere out there. You know, Andrea Mack changed my life because when I would visit Andrea's house, her, her yeah. family treated me again yeah. like Miss Helen. And it's weird because as a 55-year-old adult, my entire concept of what's important around family didn't come from my family. It came mm. from black families that I was raised with. And I've told Jessica this a million times, you know, everything from the culture of food and nurturing Mm -hmm. and of just calling things out, like, you know, you know, and whoopings, you know, I got whoopings. I know, I know, listen, I know you're raised by a black woman. If you're saying whoopings, I I got beat by my dad, but whoopings are different. You know, whoopings come with some emotions, you know, beatings are just physical, you know, so my father beat me, Miss Helen will whoop me. So, but it taught me, you know, and I'm not advocating, you know, don't hit your kids or anything. No, like no, that. no. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. Different time. Um, yes. But I do know as I aged and watched my father grow old, um, you know, my age and older, and watched him become frail, watch him mm-hmm. become more sensitive, watching the world humble him was mm-hmm. life altering for me. Because you took someone who was just horrible, always mean and threatening and, you know, and, and saying the most vile things, you know, mm-hmm. and under the cover of protection of community and, and, and institutions and things. Mm-hmm. And then watching his life and first him having to deal with me, mm-hmm. right? Because it's almost like, you know, if, if God had direct distribution on my father, it was given me as a kid. Cause like everything he hated, I ended up becoming gay, mm-hmm. black girlfriends, all of it. But mm-hmm. watching life, temper, watching life temper him, I don't know. It made me so glad that I made the decisions I did because I, I don't know how to say this, but I'm not afraid of getting old and I'm not afraid of becoming frail and weak because my mm. strength comes from inside. My strength is how I treat others. My mm. strength is what I leave on the world. I mean, 
I'm all about the dash, not on a gravestone, not the, yeah, not the, the birth, not the death, you know, that's it. it's just like, that's it. uh, and, and that that's power, you know, and people yeah. always, say, you're so confident. You're so this, and I'm like, no, I'm fearless. There's a difference. Right. You know, uh, I do it anyway. You know, yeah. I'm scared to death. But I just yeah. do it anyway. Yeah. Uh, we have a saying in new, you do it scared. Do it scared. Yeah, yeah. Do it scared. I'm yeah. never not scared. Yeah. Never not scared. Even when I've got all the kind of good feelings and I know it's the right thing, I'm still scared because at the end of the day, the worst that can happen is not me, you know, hurting something or something going wrong. That happens all the time. It's just me not leaving someone unchanged for the better. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. I, so, I just, I know that's just so important to who I am. Yeah. Yeah. Which would you feel like was, was more difficult to share with your parents that you were dating a black girl or that you are, you know, you're a gay man? It was a different time. I mean, yeah. I was 13 when I started dating Andrea and I didn't share it. You know, he found okay. out the local police, right, who were literally his eyes and ears in the town we lived in. Yeah. And then how I, how, how he, how that ended was he, once he found out, he didn't question me. He just put me in the car and took me to Andrea's house, knocked on her door. She came to the door. He asked for her parents. Her parents came to the door with her. And then he beat me in front of her. Didn't say anything to her. Just beat me in front of her and said, next time I see you with my son, he's going to be beat again. And he'll be beat till he can't walk if you continue mm. to see him. So that was just a level of just horrificness that, you know, he wasn't going to say anything to her. But he yeah. knew hurting me in front of her would hurt her more. Would hurt her, okay. right. yeah. And then to me, that's that's it's just a level of depravity and in, in, yeah. in, his, in his condition that I, I didn't understand until that point. Gay was again. I didn't tell him that either. I was I was eighteen. And I got stuck at in, in Baltimore City at the bar, and I didn't know who else to call. So I called my dad, and you know, going home, and he just said, you know. I didn't think it could get much worse or something like that. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're going to kill your mother. You're going to kill your mother. And I thought he was going to beat me because he'd always beat me, but he did not beat me. He didn't talk to me for like three or four months. And I don't know. It's like within six months, I, it was, it was hard. It, I mean, yeah. it was weird because it's not like I was close to my dad, but having him just like cold shut me out, you know? Yeah. But again, I think if all his friends were, I'll say, I'll just call it clan adjacent. I have no mm -hmm. idea. Like I, yeah. I didn't see robes. I, you know, it's not like a movie. Like I just know what it felt like, especially looking back now and knowing what I know now. Yeah. Man, did I mess up his life? Mm. You know what mm. I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I did not make it easy for him. Mm -hmm. you know? And it, it's like, I think about that all the time because when he finally did die, I was with him the day he died, and I'd spent the last few days down with him and. He was a very frail man. I'd spent time reading letters from my mother to him and things like that. And I just remember he was just so scared. And, I, you know, I'll just be honest. I just let him be scared. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Because that's not me. That's the, he has to deal with that. You know? Yeah. That's, that's his cross to bear. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. So, so let, let's talk about um, some is that of too much? Success. Is this too much? Is this no, too much? this is perfect. Okay. This is, okay. this is perfect. This is exactly what we're here for. Um, <laughs> Because that's that, what you're talking about is having to endure. I mean, that, like that, that's real trauma to oh. see this level of uh, two different parables at the same time. You know, you have this black woman that's caring for me, and then you have this father who's killing and me. And he loved Miss Helen. He would say to her all the time. Yeah. You know, 
But again, I think there's something intrinsically broken in people who have, for lack of a better term, like identificationology. Like you're yeah. a single mom, you're black, yeah, you're right. uh, college educated, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. There's something that's really inherently broken that they somehow can make a person identity and still think they can love them. You know, love doesn't have any identity, right. you know, right. uh, it, even Hallmark, it it even Hallmark has a, yeah. you go and look, try to buy a card at, at the store, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah, okay, there's sympathy and Valentine's, but, but even they struggle with it. You know yes, what I mean? Hallmark yeah. can't do it. You can't do it. You right. Know? Right. Yeah. To compartmentalize the love in that way. It's so, so, weird. so when you're talking about, let's talk a little bit about the success. So you're, you're on this climb, right? And you're just kind of like figuring out through life as it's coming to you. Or did you have this charted path that was like, I knew this would take me here and this would take me here. And you just kind of followed the lily pads of life. Which, which way did, how did it kind of unfold for you? This, All right, so I'll I, I give you, I'll give you a, uh, so meeting Michael Jackson was a big part. Okay. Of oh, let's story. talk about this. This is good. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so my mother, you know, God rest her soul, but was heavy chain smoker, swore like a sailor. Christopher. Mm-hmm. My mother would always say, Christopher, you have a horseshoe up your ass. Right. And <laughs> what does it, that mean, by the way? Exactly. And her thing was, no matter what happened, I was lucky. Oh, right? okay. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I have a horseshoe up my ass. I was always lucky. Like, you yeah. know, stuff would hit the fan. I'd still be lucky. Yeah. You know, getting that job at 14, you know, was lucky. Um, yeah. But at 13, uh, before Right as Thriller was blowing up, my mother, I had a huge Michael Jackson collection. By 1988, I was flying around the world with Michael. I'll tell you a story about that in a minute. But um, I had a huge collection because I'd been delivering papers on a motorcycle. I wasn't old enough to drive. I got at 12 mm-hmm. from delivering papers on a bicycle. Uh, but I was always like anything to get out of that house and make myself, you know, away from the crazy. Like yeah. to me, money was power and freedom and a little bit of getting away from that. But um, I had amassed this huge collection and my mother took pictures of it and wrote to Michael Jackson, never heard back, but then mm-hmm. wrote to Michael Jackson's manager secretary, who mm-hmm. she found out who it was by getting a phone book from LA. My mother was resourceful. She was like Miss mm-hmm. Helen, but like her Miss Helen would conspire. Um, but, uh, and then, the letter got to the secretary. The secretary gave it to Michael. Michael wrote back to me, sent me uh, tickets to the victory tour for DC. We were at mm-hmm. RFK Stadium. Um, and then a tour program and a letter. She's like, hey, you know, let's keep in touch. Mm-hmm. So fast forward now to, you know, four years later, Bad Album comes out. And I send a letter out to the to office, get a phone call back, Michael's team. We love, Michael would love to see you at the Grammys. He was doing a Grammys at New York um, and then four nights at Madison Square Garden, one of them being a private Pepsi concert. Went out, got to see oh that. Absolutely incredible. Tokyo. Wait, 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 wait Chris, wait, Chris. Go, go back and say that again slow. Wait, wait, wait. You, you, you're saying this stuff like, like this is just, you know, I want to speak with my dog. Wait, like, what? But see, this is the crazy thing about my life. It's all in my book. It's this crazy thing about my life. It's just like, I just was lucky, you know? Yeah. Michael, Michael's, was like, come on up, let's go to the Grammys. And, you know, I thank you for the book. And, you know, no, 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 it's okay. I, yeah. I know how important this is to you. And, you know, Michael Jackson had an effect on my life that, like, again, I could write a whole book on the magic of Michael Jackson, just because right. to me, he was everything that I wanted out of a post racial world, mm. right? He was mm. post gender before there was a gender conversation. Right. He was race before there was right. a race conversation right he was he was you know beyond fame beyond attention yeah so 
you know, having that kind of pen pal relationship with him early and then getting to see him in New York and then going to Tokyo for the bad kickoff. And then again, the last time I had any communication with him right before uh, the Dangerous album, and I got a letter and a note from Neverland saying we need to come out. But the idea of Michael Jackson and hanging out with kids and his relationship with young people, it's been going on forever. I mean, this is he was a kid, right? So, right. you know, it's funny because, you know, now with all, you know, the drama surrounding even his name sometimes, right. which again is just, you know, algor- algorithmic lynching. You know, mm-hmm. just call it what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, back then they hated I'm getting pissed off. Sorry, I'm, I look at my arm because I'm getting yeah, angry. No. <laughs> they hated Michael Jackson. Everyone yeah. hated him. You know, yes, he was super popular, but, but the people in power hated the power he had. The power right? that he had, yeah. He wielded yeah. some power. So, you know, did I call Michael and were we friends? No, but did I, did I get to visit a few times and did he fly me around places? Yeah. I mean, it was not, but it was, it was kind of not a big deal. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I'll, I'll share a video with you. You can put it in your show notes or something. Now, okay. I literally have one of the biggest collections on earth. You know, I had stuff from all over the world that I'd gotten, he'd sent, and ended up selling to someone. A Russian oligarch flew over 92 and bought it from me. And I don't know where the collection is. I have, I have like, the important things he gave me, the first letter right. I ever got from him, right. some books and things he'd given me. I still have them upstairs. Two gloves, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so... So, you have to so struggles and things. I guess all that to say is, uh, yes, I had a lot of struggles, like yeah. the parents and all the other things. But like, life has just always been really kind to me. Mm. It's so like for see, as horrible as it's been, life has always said, "Here's an olive branch." Mm-hmm. Sorry. But, yeah, just speaking to the magnitude, though, real quick of Michael Jackson. You said yeah. four four straight nights in Madison Square Garden sold out. Is that what you just said? Yeah, so he did the Grammys uh, the first night. That's where he did Man in the Mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the next night, there was a private Pepsi show. So that was mm-hmm. the first night at Madison Square Garden. And then he did three more nights after that. I was staying at the Penta Hotel at that time. But, you know, again, if you're not old enough to remember the 80s Michael Jackson, it was bigger than life. I mean, yes, pandemonium. Michael, Michael Jackson literally would put out a video and like TV shows would shut down. I mean, right. the Simpsons episode was for black or white. Thriller right. shut down on TV. I mean, the bad video was a whole premiere. I mean, I wish people understood how much the world should miss Michael Jackson. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's funny because, you know, and this isn't to get on a rabbit hole in this, but a lot of people, a lot of, you know, uh, millennials and, and, and younger people try to compare the fame and celebrity of individuals today to what Michael Jackson was in that day. And I'm like, you're taking away, if you take away social media, which there wasn't at that time, and he had even more fame without social media. And he was black. And yeah, yeah. It's like, he, okay. he, was, on a whole, he was on a whole nother level. And again, yeah. to your point, I mean, people, I hear, I see this young, and funny story. So I'm working with the ELLA Foundation. I've been in contact with them. I was just out at Michael's house for the Halloween party for Trailer 40. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but I, yeah, it's funny because now I'm like, you know, can I help you guys out with some project? I'll hear that in a second. What people don't understand about like comparing Michael Jackson to anyone today is, yeah, you know, today, you know, we live in a different world. But back then, it really was not just the kind of racism you know was everywhere. It was in your damn face. Yes, yes, right here. It's different. Yeah. You know, yeah. someone, someone filming you dropping the N word now and like being mm-hmm. canceled for it, that's cute. It happened yeah. all the time. Yes. Yeah. And not only did they call you, they pull out a gun and they'd probably actually try to shoot you. Right. 
You know, so I'm not saying like one race of them is harder than the other, but I'm like, it was a different world. And Michael Jackson succeeded in that one. That world, yes. That yeah. world. Yeah. And he yeah. did it, you know, and he talked about climate and, you know, mm -hmm. and the, the, you know, gosh, the thing. Build the world. Yeah. The bad, video, the bad video is about a young boy who went to uh, school uh, mm -hmm. from Harlem who was then killed for trying to get up for escape gun violence. Mm -hmm. You know, people forget that. They just remember the live there's some state, but there's a whole movie before the bad video. Right. You know? Yeah. Sorry. I could yeah. go on and on. I could do a whole show on the magic and exploration of Michael Jackson because I don't, he changed my damn life. Wow. Wow. So you're on this climb and you, you talked yeah. a little about working at WebMD and, and some. So let's go through some of your, 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 um, your, your success, your, your, uh, <laughs> success points. Oh, my goodness. So. Again, couldn't finish school because my parents were spending the damn money. Mm -hmm. um, and But I was still teaching myself computers and doing all this computer stuff. So I started doing more medical computer stuff in the early 90s. Yeah. Got a job at a software company that ended up becoming the main engine behind WebMD. So we ended up changing our name to WebMD. I was employee three. They're running their entire service division. Mm -hmm. That gets me to the late 90s, early 2000s. We went public. Uh, I thought, you know, two hundred thousand dollars was more money than I would never have to work again. What no one tells you about two hundred thousand dollars when you're in your late twenties is it'll go damn fast. Yes, it goes. Uh, yeah. it, it ain't that much money. You know, I should have yeah. bought a house or done something smart, but you know, it's like <laughs> you you have a lot of good nights out with friends on two hundred thousand dollars. But um, so I got a job working at a, a database company that basically sold service and support software called Goldmine, but then it became Front Range. And I'm like everyone from the Waffle House to the White House. I put their systems in from 98 until 2003. I was at the Pentagon. On, I'm not the Pentagon. I was at the FAA on 9-11 when, mm. when they literally had to bring down the fleet. Just just mm -hmm. wild circumstances where I just moved in kind of circles of very affluent people. By the middle 2000s, I was working for another big company that was flying me around the world to kind of do these big installations. I, again, I, I could name drop with all the kind of impressive companies where you probably go there and I, mm -hmm. I built their systems, but I was drunk, right? So mm -hmm. the thing was I could do my job during the day, but at night I would just use drugs and drink and just do mm -hmm. anything. I was 320 pounds. Life mm -hmm. was a hot mess, mm -hmm. but it was weird. If you're really good at something, the world will prop you up to your demise. Yes. yes. And I tell yeah. people this all the time, be careful what you're good at because the world will try to kill you for it. Mm. And it doesn't matter how good you become, the world will kill you for it even more. Because if you're good at something, they want to make sure you keep doing it. And if you're bad at something and they enjoy it, they want to watch it even more. Yes. So, you know, you can be you're good at making someone money. They'll make sure you can make money, but they love watching the show. I call it the show. There are people right. who love to see me be successful during the day and be a hot mess at night. Right. You know, because they live for the show because it's the right. drama. You know, right. far too many of us are TV for people who don't care about us and just want to watch us fall. So, uh, you know, that was a big lesson, too. When I was watching my own dad, I was like, uh, uh I'm turning this show off. You know, yeah. I get that people like the show, but this ain't my show. It's their yes. show. But yes. back to this. So I was flying around doing that. And by the late 2000s, when I turned, you know, to, you know, 40 and I was, you know, 300 pounds, I was falling apart and I built the system. It just got to this point where it's just like, I've got to find some way to find me. It, intrinsically, I'm good, but I've got to figure all of that out. And then. Worked for another big SaaS company called ServiceNow. Worked for another big mobile, uh, big software company called BMC. And then, boom, you know, I was at a conference. Someone saw my laptop just 
building stuff. And I said, how did your laptop writing all by itself? And I said, oh, I have a sensor. And I stood up and it said, right. And he was a writer from Wired Magazine. And the rest is history. You know, Wired Magazine story the next day, a TV show or a first interview on TV. And then the cover of Business Week in 2014. Uh, first TED Talk in 2014. Five TED Talks now about me. It's like, I don't even do them anymore. People do them about me. And then, I don't know. It's like one thing after another. Then the book deal in 15. Um, first TV show in 16, Darknet. Then the book came out in 17. Second TV show in 18. Optioned the book for a movie in 19. Got married in 18. So I've been single my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, pandemic. Uh, the first thing I did in pandemic in 2020 was I built a system to unify my neighborhood with a bunch of old people. And I was afraid they wouldn't be able to get groceries and things like that. Second thing in the pandemic was I built a system for black speakers. So black speakers needed to get paid. I'd really good at getting paid. So Hmm. I bought this thing called black speakers. And I don't know, it's like as soon as the pandemic came and I could take some time off of being famous. I don't mean that like in a, I know what you mean. Yeah. 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 Uh, Cause you know, like I don't no one's having an event. I got to say, okay, now, like, could I write these little mini systems to change other people's lives? And mm-hmm. I don't know. And then the last thing I built was something called the Advocator, which is this really cool little system that uh, basically you can take any kind of social injustice that you're dealing with, mm-hmm. and it will go ahead and write on your behalf a letter. So basically, this is it. It's called the Advocator, Amplify Your Voice, uh, Automate Your Impact. And what it does is, depending on your social issue, a health issue or a support issue, so you can have a social issue, everything from black lives to trans lives, health issues, everything from COVID to HIV, support issues, everything from neurodiversity to ADHD. And what it does is it walks you through this little uh, questionnaire, and then it uses the laws and uh, systems closest to you, writes a letter to anyone you want to advocate on your behalf. Nice. Because a lot of times people don't have... I guess the legal language yeah, to the language to yeah. Yeah. And, and I noticed that if, if I could use AI in a way to amplify people's, I didn't want to automate. That's the other thing. Not be like, we'll build a bot that spams Congress. They know that. Right. Yeah. But what yeah. I like about AI is and what I did with mine was like, you can take your voice, your story, your tone, mm-hmm. your tone. Yeah. And marry it with some legal mm-hmm. and make it something that hits hard. That's you powerful. Know? Give us the name of that again. The advocator. Yeah, yeah. The site is just uh, advocator.ai. Um, but, you know, I, I see a lot of people now, you know, especially in the kind of a, you know, disruption scene. They're doing all this AI stuff. I'm like, you know, people building the stupidest stuff, yeah. you know. When we got actual problems out there, right. you know, that yeah. we could use an AI to help right? mm-hmm. communities. I tell Jessica Brooks all the time, she needs to build a damn black army, yeah. right? She needs to go. She's got a... a, a church she goes to hundreds and hundreds of young people mm-hmm. i said let me come down there and do a half a day class yeah. i will train every single one of them people to build something that will change their community and their lives yeah why we are not doing this is beyond me or acting like it's a secret or hard yeah you know it's stuff's just easy sorry i could ramble about this stuff all day long no this is good man this is really good um so i, I just got a couple more questions the yeah, yeah. the other thing i want to get into is so you're, you're you're on this weight loss journey, and yeah, yeah. you you drop this hundred pounds. Yeah. <laughs> what does what did it take? Talk talk about what it took. And quit smoking. And quit smoking. Yeah. 
So all of these pivotal changes, right? What just talk about what it took to actually accomplish that. What did it you actually know, take for hate, you as a yeah, you know, yeah, I hate to say it. So I'm gonna start with the cost. Okay. Because everyone's, everyone's like, I don't want what you did, Christine. So let's talk about the cost first. So okay. what no one tells you about losing weight or quitting smoking or getting a better job or fixing any of your life problems is mm-hmm. it's not your life anymore. So, if you've had a problem for long enough, that's your life. Yes. And the minute you lose the weight, change the spouse, get the better job, get your mm-hmm. teeth fixed, get the muffler placed, that's not your life. You know, yeah. some of your friends don't know you're driving up to the house because the muffler ain't making noise. Right. You know, and no one tells you the price of admission. They just tell you how good the movie was. That's right. right. Yeah. And for me, like, I don't know. And I've spent the last five years trying to, like, actually get a little bit of a refund back on some of the life changes I made. Mm-hmm. Because it's hard not knowing who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, ask anyone who's lost a lot of weight. And if they're honest with you, they'll tell you the hard part wasn't losing the weight. It was not knowing their body. Like, yeah. Yeah. when you put jeans on, you don't believe it's you. You know, it's called. <laughs> no, serious. Like, I still have to look at other people's genes and go, "Wait, am I a 32? Because right. there's no way. I'm that's a 32. It's like right. the, the this latest picture of the president. You're saying he's six three, two fifteen. I'm like, well, yeah, no, yeah, no, no. Um, but that's the cost. But you know, to get there though, you have to be willing to do two things. The first thing is make yourself a number, which stinks. So mm-hmm. if you're if it's money you're worried about, then what's your number? Mm-hmm. What do you got to earn a year? Or what do you, you know, what, you know, what do you got to stop spending a month? If it's weight, what's your number? What's your mm-hmm. BMI? If it's health, you know, what's your blood sugar? What's your heart rate? What's your blood pressure? If it's, you know, if it's family, it's how many hours you're spending with your kids. You know, what's your number? I hate to say it, but you got to figure out the number. Mm-hmm. After your number, you kind of have to go and apologize to a bunch of people before you get mm-hmm. to step two and say, I have to be a number for a bit, which means I can't be bad. I can't be your friend. I can't mm-hmm. be your drinking buddy. Mm-hmm. But once you commit to saying, okay, I am the number now, the rest of it is not counting the number, but just doing it. I always say, you know, you don't get better by, you don't get better by counting steps. You get better by taking them. Like doing the number is different than counting the number. Once you know the number, like, okay, I'm going to lose a hundred pounds. That's, that's, that's kind of okay. But like doing it's hard because it's like just millions, small little things you have to do. Right. So, you know, first step is become a number. Second one is just do the number. Um, and that sounds relatively simple, but yeah. you get difficult. it. You know it yeah. Because the minute you don't recognize yourself, you're doing mm-hmm. the number. Yeah. But every day you know you're doing the number, you're not doing it. Because yeah. when you do the number, you don't know. You got to lose yourself. That's it. That's it. That's good. So identity well, loss, that, that's kind of the key to, to all ills in your life. So whatever what you is, think is wrong, you've got to lose you. Yeah. L- lose you to find yourself. Yeah. And it's true because people don't understand how fundamental it is to habit change, losing who you think you are. Mm-hmm. Because even my friends, like when I go out drinking or I like have like 10 pack of White Castles on a picture on Facebook in 2010, mm-hmm. everybody be like, ah, I love White Castles. Yeah. But you know, then I started posting salads. No one came around. Nobody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Silence. Because yeah. people want the show. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know? Most of the people in your life want the show. They don't want you. Yeah. And if someone really wants you, they're probably not in your life if your values don't align. Hmm. You know, and like uh, my mom used to say, you know, Miss Helen used to say the time, you know, Christopher, you'll only ever be as good as the five people you know 
you know, mm. the most, you know, yeah. so the sum of the five, oh, you only be as successful as the most successful person, you know, right you know? Yeah. And I just had to lose myself. So it didn't matter who I knew. I could yeah. become. Them. Sorry. No, you're good. So two, two more questions. One, I, I want to know, you know, can you take us through a point where you didn't know what to do next? Like it could have been the loss of your um of your your friend to HIV. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could have been any myriad of things. Talk about a, a period where you just didn't know what to do next, and what did, you know, how did you muster through that? Can I can I talk about woo? Okay, who's this? Woo woo, uh, like spirituality. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. So I wasn't raised very spiritual, man. Anytime I got to a point where I didn't know what to do next, woo happened. You know, mm. God, Jesus, whatever yeah. you want to call. It. You know, when my lover passed away in 1993, I I went outside because you know the police were there, and he's you know like dead in bed. And I woke up, he's already dead, and like I'm mm. loose on my mind, and um, my dog's out there. Dog runs out in the street. Dog gets hit by a car. My lover just died. You know, and suddenly you know, I walk back inside. I didn't want to see the dead dog, and the landlord comes, you know, you got to get Buster. You got to get Buster. I said, he's dead. And he goes, no, he's right here. On stage, right? Mm. Same day, father and mother hear that my lover passed away. They show up after not talking because they didn't want to talk to me. Not only was I gay, but I was dating someone with HIV positive. Mm. So it's like every time I truly hit that kind of, there's nothing left. You know, jail, right? Yeah. Ends up that the, the person who's doing the checkout at the jail is my best friends from high school's mother, you know, mm. it was like, there's been all these kind of major, my mother dies. Right? Yeah. So I literally like flying down to see her. I'm at the airport, early two thousands phone rings. She actually just passed away. She wasn't the test. She didn't even go to the test. She had a massive heart attack. I losing my mind. I walk into a gift store to get a, a stuffed animal for my, my brother's kid. Mm. And, um, it was a beanie baby and the beanie baby's name was, Dancy, which is my last name, and had my mother's birthday. Mm-hmm. So, like, there have always been these outrageous spiritually synchronistic events. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'm just open to them or, but something always reaches down and saves me. Mm-hmm. It's different than luck. You know, when, yeah. like, I was just lucky and, like, bad things yeah. happened. I'd be lucky. This is yeah. like an entertaining hand of God. And I don't want to, like, upset anyone if you don't like God or you don't like whatever, but. If I had to say, you know, what did you do when you didn't know what to do? I didn't yeah. have to do anything. I was mm. always, always, always taken care of. Wow. I, I wish I could say I had some magic. And and I think the more I believed that, the more it happened more. Mm-hmm. You know, they call it faith for a reason. Yeah. 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 Well, wow, yeah. that's good, man. And, and, and you know what? I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, anytime, anything that's been mon- monumental in my life, whether it was something that was good or something that was devastating. Um, I agree with you hundred percent that I, when, you know, I, I have a firm, I believe in a firm state statement that uh, man's extremity is God's opportunity. And mm. so when I'm at my very wits end, it's like, that's when God is ever present and you, you get to see the difference between my, my inability and what he's fully capable of doing uh, in in and through me, and so that's that's I love I love how you how you shared that. There's a quote right. I love. It's uh, the place God calls you to is where 
uh, your deepest gladness and the world's deepest hunger meet. Hmm. Say that again uh, for us. Yeah, yeah. The place God calls you to is where your deepest gladness and the world's deepest hunger meet. Wow. And it, it, when I think back about my life, the thing that truly makes me happy is just the resilient feeling of, I must swear, mm-hmm. but I because I don't know, I just feel like I have to say it this way. Mm-hmm. I don't care how bad it is, I'm going to fuck up a bad system. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to fuck up a bad system. Because, okay. you know, I tell Jessica all the time, the only thing that beats a bad system is a better one. Yeah, true. It doesn't matter what it is, racism to poverty. The only mm-hmm. thing that beats a bad system is a better one. And man, do I make good systems. Yeah. Wow, this is good, man. I tell you what, let's close with a, a call to action. What, what would you, what some action steps you would uh, leave for our listeners? And then how can they best follow you, contact you, or, you know? Well, first, don't, because I don't do social media very well. Okay, I got, I got go. a little following here and there, but it's just ranty. You know, you get to be my age, you don't care about, you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff. So, first thing is, you don't have to find me. If you do want to chat, my phone number literally is on my website. I guess my husband will tell you I get phone calls from people all the time. I don't know. And not bill collectors. Just people just say, hey, I heard you on this show or I read your book or just I heard about you. And, you know, first things first, if you need anything, you can literally call me up because I want you to know if you're listening to this right now, I've probably been where you are or I probably know someone and I will listen and I will do what I can. Because at the end of the day, everyone either needs a connection, uh, uh, someone to talk to or some some resource help. Uh, Second thing is people today need to really consider what they value. And that word gets tossed around a lot. But for me, really deciding what my values were. So they're health, home, family, uh, work, finances, and service. And then taking those six values and saying, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that I don't do these things. I do do these things. I literally have them written down. I mean, yeah. I'm my, my spouse and I, my friends, I even have a terms of service like software I give to my actual friends, make them sign it uh, and just stick to it. You know, the one thing I was told that I did not believe for the longest time is your people are out there. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it sounds hard because you're like, oh, you know, I need so many people to say you don't have friends and you're like, you know, but your people are out there. You just need to be very discriminating. The right people will come to you and and if you don't got friends or you don't have a relationship, a lot of people are like, I need a relationship, I need a partner, I need more friends. You have to do the work. You cannot make friends by following people on social media. Friends take work. You have to show up. You cannot be friends or have a relationship with a spouse by texting them. Yeah. It takes voices. Yeah. Relationships take all your senses, sight, voice, mm-hmm. touch, yeah. smell. There's a reason sex smells, yeah. right? So if you're missing people from your life, you are not using all your senses. Mm. God gave you senses, mm-hmm. right? And I just, I wonder how many people, if they just were to use something more mm. than their brain and their fingers, mm. would find so much love. Got to do the work relationships. I guess that's my biggest message. Yeah. You've got to be involved in people's lives. And I know it's hard. And they might turn their back on you, but get it out of the way sooner. You will yeah. pay the toll either way. Just get it out of the way. Sorry, I could go on about this. No, that's good. That's good, man. Well, listen, I really appreciate this time we've shared. Man, you've dropped some real gems in here. And uh, give us the book one more time, the book title. If it's even still out, I don't know. If not, I'll send it to you. It's called Don't Unplug, How Technology Saved My Life and Can Save Yours Too. Okay. Uh, 
PDF, I read it on uh, Audible, so you get to listen to me rant for, and talk about Michael Jackson for eight hours on Audible. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's good. But like, don't buy the book. Just take that money and give it to a stranger and listen to this show twice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> really appreciate you, Chris. Uh, we'll definitely right. be in touch. And this has been a, a wonderful gift uh, and time well spent. So thank you so much for that. For all of our listeners, we appreciate you. Uh, follow us on social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. It. And we will, as at New You Tulsa, uh, we want to make sure that we are able to connect with you. Also at New Voices, we are we have those on those platforms. Uh, we're really excited to hear stories from you of how this this today's uh, uh, session has been encouraging to you. All right, so thanks so much. Thanks for listening. God bless. Thank you for listening to this episode of New Voices. Visit our website at www.newutulsa.com. That is N-E-W-U Tulsa.com. Follow us on social media at New U Tulsa on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And a special thank you to our producer, Jesse Ulrich. If you're looking for self-improvement, join our free cohorts for personal and professional development opportunities. New U is a way for diverse talent to imagine, discover, and actualize a 2.0 version of yourself. Bring your future into focus. Thank you.